I were to ask you if you had ever witnessed or been caught in the middle of a church dispute, I'm sure that quite a few of you in here would be able to tell of multiple stories of disagreements that you either witnessed or maybe you were caught in the middle of over the years. And I'm, I'm sure that there are some of you in here who have stories to tell of disagreements that you have seen taking place in the church that are so petty they are hardly believable. Well, a while back, I got online, I read a few of these kinds of stories, and though those telling the story promise these things really happen, I don't have any evidence to prove that they did, so you're going to have to be the judge here, okay? So let me share a few of these stories with you, and I'll let you decide whether or not you want to believe them or not. The first story is of two churches about a mile from one another that at one time were one church, but they split back about 40 years ago over fried chicken. Not joking, that's what it said. The person telling the story reported that uh, this church was having a, a picnic on the church grounds when two ladies of two key families in the church who didn't care for one another very much both brought fried chicken. And the pastor, unaware of this, stopped at one end of the table and grabbed some chicken and ate it and went on and on about how it was the best chicken he had ever eaten. And there was a huge disagreement right there on the church grounds and the church eventually split a while later. Now, once again, I don't know if, if this really happened the way that this person said it did, but surely, hopefully, there's more going on there than uh, fried chicken, right? Uh, here's another story. In the 1890s, there was a small Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky, and this church had two deacons, and uh, these two men just seemed to constantly be at odds with one another, bickering back and forth. This went on for for years, and on a particular Sunday, one of the deacons put a wooden peg up on the back wall so that the pastor could hang his hat up, and the other deacon, when he discovered the peg, he was outraged. He thought to himself, how dare someone put up a peg on the wall without consulting him first? And the people in the church, they took sides on the matter, and the congregation eventually split. And over a hundred years later, the residents of Mayfield County supposedly still refer to the two churches as Peg Baptist and Anti-Peg Baptist Church. What a, what a thing to be known for, right? In the late 90s, Holy Creek Baptist Church, don't know where that's located, but this church was split into multiple groups, and the source of dissension was a small piano bench which still sits behind a 1923 Steinway piano left of the pulpit. Members and friends at Holy Creek Baptist Church say that old bench was always a source of hostility. People should have seen this coming. Wow. Those are pretty petty, right? Well, whether or not these stories are, are true or not, what is unfortunate about these stories is they're not as unbelievable as they sound, right? For those of us who have grown up in and around the church. Many of us 
have heard about or maybe we've even witnessed the church being split over similar issues that are equally as petty. And something else I want you to to notice here about each of these stories is how the people respond. And each story, instead of coming to the church's aid, doing whatever it takes for the sake of unity, what do the people in these stories do? Well, what they normally do, right? They take sides and they split the church. Now, whether or not these stories are believable or not is one thing, but I believe this element in each of these stories is much more believable. It seems as if nine times out of ten people respond in this way. When there is conflict, those within the church don't normally attempt to make peace. They don't do whatever it takes for the sake of unity. They take sides, which brings about a greater division. Now, why do they do that? Well, a few reasons. One, they care more about being right and their own feelings rather than what is best for the church, and they definitely do not value the church as they should. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 26 this morning. In this passage, we're going to see that Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. And we're going to learn that when he gets there, he is faced with a similar issue. There is a problem with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And there is potential for disunity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so we're going to discuss this issue. And we're going to talk about this threat of disunity. And we are going to, we are going to examine Paul's response. And we're also going to draw out application from the way in which he responds. So let's look at this passage of Scripture. And what I want to do this morning is I want to ask and answer three questions. One, I want us to answer the question of why Paul went to Jerusalem. Number two, how Paul was received when he got to Jerusalem. And number three, what Paul did in response. Why Paul went, how he was received, and what he did in response. Let's first look at why Paul went to Jerusalem. And this is going to be a bit of a review for some of you, but, but bear with me, okay? We have talked about over the past several weeks now, Paul has his sights set on Jerusalem. He's on his third missionary journey. He's headed toward Jerusalem, but he doesn't make a straight route there. Instead, he travels hundreds of miles out of the way to all of these Gentile and, and Jewish and Gentile mixed churches that he has started on his missionary journeys. And the reason why he goes to these churches is to take up a collection, to take up some money from them to bring to the church in Jerusalem because they are struggling. The Christians in Jerusalem were being oppressed severely at this time. They were extremely poor. They were struggling so bad financially that Paul went to extremely poor churches in Macedonia and elsewhere, churches where believers were being persecuted to collect money from them to take to the Christians in Jerusalem who were worse off. That's how bad it was. So these churches we learn as we study, they showed great love and support, giving out of their poverty to support a bunch of believers they had never met in 
Jerusalem. And we also learned that Paul showed great love for the Christians in Jerusalem as well by traveling all over everywhere to take up this collection for them. And not only did Paul collect money from these churches for the church in Jerusalem, but he also gathered up believers from these Gentile churches as well to take with them to Jerusalem to present this offering to the believers there to support the church in Jerusalem and to show them this great love that has been shown them from their Gentile brothers in Christ in hopes of strengthening the bond between the Jewish and Gentile believers. We're told that Paul brought Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. He brought believers from churches in Thessalonica, believers from Berea, believers from the churches in Galatia and Asia, again, to strengthen the bond between them and the Jewish believers. Paul loved the church, didn't he? He loved the church. He longed to see the church unified and strong. He longed to see God's church, Christ's church, thrive, and he served the church tirelessly and sacrificially and selflessly. Paul loved the church. And as he got closer to Jerusalem, he had many of his brothers in Christ begging him not to go because the Spirit of God had revealed to many of them that trouble awaited Paul in Jerusalem. It came to a head in Caesarea where we were last week when the prophet Agabus came to the house of Philip where Paul was. And he not only told Paul about the danger in Jerusalem, but he, but he also showed Paul. That's true to form for an Old Testament prophet. We're told in Acts chapter 21, verse 11, Luke says, Agabus came to us and took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And after this, we're told that Luke and the others broke down and they wept and they begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And how did Paul respond? You remember? He said, I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Because Paul would not be persuaded, we're told that the rest said, let the will of the Lord be done and they all went with him. So Paul, as he did with the other churches he ministered to throughout the world, throughout the known world, he served the Christians in Jerusalem tirelessly, sacrificially, and selflessly, asking nothing in return. And as we said a moment ago, and as we said a few weeks ago, Paul, he loved the church in this way, right? He loved the church. So much so that he would lay down his very life so that she may thrive. Believers, is this your mentality? I believe we all have sore toes this morning, don't we? But you know what that should tell us? We got a long way to go to be like Jesus. You know why? Because Christ loved the church so much so that he laid down his life for the sake of of the church. Ephesians 5.25, Paul tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for 
her. Christ gave himself up for the church. That's how much he loved her. And Paul loved the church in this way as well. Now, how do the Christians in Jerusalem respond to this? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And many of you may be surprised at the response, but I don't think we should be. It's a similar response to what we see today. Let's look at it. Point number two, how was Paul received? Look at verse 17. And notice Luke is there with him once again, giving us an eyewitness account of what happened. He says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Okay, let's stop there for just a minute. We're told in verse 17 that when Luke and Paul and the others came to Jerusalem, their brothers in Christ received them gladly. They gave them a warm welcome, which is what we would hope would happen here, right? And we're told that James was there. Remember, we learned in Acts chapter 15 that James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader in the church in Jerusalem at this time. So he's there along with the elders from the church in Jerusalem. And we are told that Paul and the rest of his traveling companions sat down with James and the elders from this church. And Paul reported to them about all the things he, the great apostle Paul, had done among the Gentiles in ministry. Is that what it says? No. We've already talked about Paul's great humility in ministry, and we definitely see that highlighted here, and we're definitely going to see that more in just a minute. But notice here what Luke says. He says, Paul told them one by one things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. God used Paul to do great and mighty things in ministry. We've been talking about that in this study. Yet we are never told, not for one second, that Paul ever took credit for the great fruit that came as a result of his ministry. God had done this great work through Paul. And Paul doesn't just give a general report of what God did. Look, we are told he went line by line, one by one, giving a detailed account of the great work that God had done amongst the Gentiles in Galatia, in Asia, and throughout Europe. Paul just took his time bragging on God. When's the last time you spent time thinking about all the great things that that God has done in your life and in the life of your family and in and through the ministries of His church? When's the last time you spent time thinking on those things and sharing those things with others? When's the last time you just spent time bragging on God? Oftentimes we just focus on the things God has not done for us or is not doing for us rather than all the things he has done for us. Paul bragged on God. That was the first matter of business during this meeting in Jerusalem. And notice how they respond. We're told they respond the way we hope they would. They glorified God, which, by the way, should be the way you respond when people brag on God. You should be bragging on God and you should be rejoicing when you hear others do so. But notice what happens next. 
They then report to Paul about the work that's been taking place in, in Jerusalem. They say to Paul, verse 20, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now, how would Paul have seen this? Well, he probably attended a worship service shortly after coming to Jerusalem, so that he probably saw all the believers there. But we're also told that Paul wanted to be with them by Pentecost. So there's a good chance that he got there on time and there were a lot of Christians in Jerusalem at this time which Paul would have, he would have seen all these believers, all these Jewish believers who had, who had trusted in Christ. And uh, so, so there's probably a lot of Christians in Jerusalem at this time and they let Paul know that, that God is doing a great work in Jerusalem. But notice there's an issue as well. There almost always is, right? Look at verse 20 and 21. They're talking about these Jewish converts to Christianity. They say, they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Wow. Now, my guess is when James and the other elders shared this with Paul, Paul was blindsided by this. He had come all this way to Jerusalem. He had served them tirelessly, traveling all over everywhere, collecting money, gathering up believers to bring to Jerusalem. He has served them sacrificially, risking life and limb everywhere he went. And he also had served them selflessly, asking for nothing in return. And though everyone told him not to go to Jerusalem because it's too dangerous, what did Paul say? He said, I'm going. If it costs me my life, I'm going to them to bring relief to them for the purpose of bringing unity between the Jews and the Gentile churches. And he finally gets there, and I kind of picture all this money just being piled up everywhere. And they're in this room, and you got Gentile believers who have traveled with Paul to bring this offering to the Jewish believers. And how did the Jewish people respond? How did the Jewish Christians respond? They say, hey, Paul, we're glad God's doing a great work amongst the Gentiles. He's doing a great work here as well. But these believers have an issue with you. They have been told that you teach all the Jews in these Gentile areas to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What's up with that, Paul? Now, put yourself in Paul's sandals or in Luke's sandals or just put yourself on the scene. How would you respond? I'll be honest with you. I'd be thinking, really? You're going to hit us up with that? This guy has risked everything for you. To bring these Gentiles to you. These Gentiles have given out of their poverty for you. They have made huge sacrifices to provide for you in your time of need. Paul is probably going to be arrested and killed here for being with you. And how do you respond? With gossip and slander and lies. I'd be mad. Wouldn't you? My knee-jerk reaction would be, are you kidding me? How are you going to stand there and criticize Paul's ministry when he's shown such great love for you? You're going to spread these lies? 
Now, it wasn't James spreading these lies. He was just being the messenger here. But you're going to spread these lies here? Your people are going to spread these lies about Paul, saying all he does in ministry is speak against Moses and the custom of the Jews, when the truth of the matter is his main focus is on Christ and him crucified? That's what was going through my mind when I was studying this text. But then I got to think about this. I got to think about the people that, I, that I've had encounters with in the past who say, man, if we could just get back to that early church in Jerusalem, you know, the first church, we get back to being like them, we wouldn't have any problems, really. We learn here, churches always had issues. You know why? Because the church has always been made up of people who have issues. Not a lot has changed. They've just heard a report about thousands upon thousands of Gentiles who have given their lives to Christ and that Gentiles have given out of their poverty to help during their time of need. And their response is, Paul, many have heard that you're telling Jews in these areas to forsake Moses and our customs. What's up with that? They had completely lost their kingdom focus. Man, that happens today, doesn't it? We'll have a mission team report back to the church about all the awesome things that God is doing around the world. And some are thinking, man, cost $20,000 for those 10 people to go? Think of all that could have been used here with that money. Or there are others who are barely listening, wondering who's going to win the big game that afternoon or whether or not they're going to have Tex-Mex or pizza for lunch. Am I off here? I don't think I am. Same thing happens here that happened in the church in Jerusalem. The church that got its start with Jesus himself. The church who at this time was being pastored by James, the brother of Jesus, had issues. Not a very good response to Paul and his ministry and the gift that he brought to this Jewish congregation that was carried in by the hands of these Gentile believers from all over the known world. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, it gets worse. Sometimes does. Look, verse 22 through 25. James says, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. So, so here you have an elder telling an apostle what to do. Church government has certainly changed over the 20 years. It was the other way around when the church was first started, but, but tables have turned. He, James says, we have four men who are under a vow. Verse 24, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shade their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So James here, I believe, trying to keep the peace as well, he says, hey, Paul, I know how you can smooth things over with these Jewish Christians here who are zealous for the law. You can really break down the dividing wall if you will partake in a ceremonial practice with these four men. James says we got four guys 
who are under a vow. And we learn in verse 24 that it was a Nazarite vow. And we've already talked a bit about the Nazarite vow. Remember we talked about that a while back. And we don't have time to go into it this morning. But if you would like a detailed commentary on the Nazarite vow, you can get uh, online, fellowshipjacksonville.com. Listen to another sermon in this series called Things You'll Never Hear God Say, Part 1. I talk about it at length. Or you can also look at uh, Numbers chapter 6 and and read about uh, the Nazarite vow. But we learn in this passage that these four men were coming to the end of this Nazarite vow. And James says to Paul, why don't you purify yourself and join these men in completing their vow and pay their expenses. And we learn in Numbers chapter 6, verse 14, that there were several costly sacrifices that had to be made. So James thought that Paul, by doing that, would show these new Jewish converts to Christianity that he was not opposed to Moses and to the law and to the Jewish Customs. He basically is telling Paul here, show them that what they think about you is not true. Show them that you are a friend to the Jews. Show them that you do not oppose our customs by taking part in this vow. And James also says, as for the, the Gentiles with you, they kind of overlooked the fact that they traveled all this way to bring an offering there. He says, as for the Gentiles, all that's needed for them to keep the peace and unity with the Jewish brothers is by them keeping what was agreed upon at the Jerusalem council, that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and for, from uh, sexual immorality. And for more commentary on the, what was agreed upon at the Jerusalem Council, get on fellowshipjacksonville.com. There's already been a sermon that I preached on this called An Important Event in Our History. An Important Event in Our History. Check that out on the Jerusalem Council. But what I want you to get here is what James is calling for Paul to do is really go out of his way to smooth things over with these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And I really think that James and Paul want similar things between the Jews and the Gentiles. They just have a much different way of of going about it. But again, this response had to have been frustrating to Paul and to the others with him. I mean, shouldn't the fact that they traveled all over Galatia and Asia and throughout Europe to gather support for the church in Jerusalem and the fact that they put their lives on the line everywhere that they went over and over again, risk life and limb traveling to Jerusalem just to bring this offering to them. Shouldn't that show them how much they love them? Well, how does Paul respond? How would you respond? <laughs> What's your knee-jerk reaction? It might be, man, keep the money. We're going elsewhere. How does Paul respond? Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. In simpler terms, Paul did it. He did it, folks. He did it. Now, some believe that Paul was in the wrong here. 
They think that Paul compromised too much. They think he made a gospel compromise here, a compromise for the sake of truth. In fact, evangelicals are split over this. Some men I know and, and really respect, they believe that this was Paul's greatest mistake in his ministry, but I disagree. Though Paul was a man, he was a fallen sinner saved by grace, I do not believe that he makes a gospel compromise here for several reasons. One, because in Acts 18, we see Paul taking a Nazarite vow. We've already talked about that. Paul was Jewish, and there were certain things that he continued to do, certain ways he showed personal devotion to God that were influenced by his Jewish past and by Jewish ceremonialism. Was it wrong then? No, no different than Peter and John praying at the designated times in the temple and keeping up with the dietary laws. Paul's just giving us another example of him becoming all things to all men without moral compromise for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of ministry and for the sake of unity. Remember, he circumcised Timothy, but he didn't circumcise Titus. Why did Paul do that? Well, Timothy was half Jewish, half Gentile, and he knew he was going to be ministering to both, and he didn't want a closed door on Timothy when ministering to the Jews because that would communicate to them, him not being circumcised, that he rejected his Jewishness. So Paul circumcised Timothy, but why not Titus? Because Titus was a Gentile and did ministry amongst the Gentile. So Paul did this a lot for the purpose of unity. Second, if this was the greatest mistake in the Apostle Paul's ministry, don't you think the Holy Spirit would have highlighted that for us in his word? I heard a pastor once say, the Holy Spirit is not prone to let sin go without comment. It's true, right? I know that's true in my own life. I hope that's true in yours. So I think we would have something here if this was a royal mess up. No. But Paul does do what the elders require. And I know I've made mention of this a, a few times before, but I want to I close this out by saying this. What jumps off the page at me here is Paul's great love for the church and his great desire to see the church universal, the Jewish and Gentile Christians unified, and he was willing to lay down his life for it. And he humbly purified himself and took part in this vow and gave out of his poverty to sponsor these Jews taking this vow for the sake of unity in the church. Paul loved the church. He was willing to sacrifice everything for her. Believers, again, what about you? What are you willing to sacrifice for the church? Would you die for the unity of the church? Would you lay down your life so that the church would be strong and built up and thrive? And I'm not talking about the perfect church here. I'm not talking about the church in its glorified state. I'm talking about a group of people being sanctified, and some are very, very slow in the process. Paul loved the church. He was willing to lay down his life for the church to be unified. Many of us in here, we can't even wrap our minds around that, can we? We really can't. Again, I think this should show us how far we are 
from being like Jesus who gave his life for the church or much less like Paul who was willing to make that sacrifice over and over again. So what we need to do is we need to start at a much lesser question. And that question is this, what are you willing to give up for Christ and for his church? What are you willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ and for the sake of his people and for the sake of his church? Listen, your list, if you're being honest, will be very, very telling to where you are spiritually. Maybe you're here this morning. If you're being honest, your answer is nothing. You wouldn't give up anything for Christ and his church. And the reason why is because Christ is not your treasure. You're not trusting in him alone for your salvation. You're not a member of his family. You're not a part of his church. And I'm talking about the true church made up of God's children who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. If this is you, here's my response to you. If you have not, turn from your sin today. Forsake your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus so that you can be forgiven of your sin, so that you can be made right with God, so that Christ can truly become your treasure. Listen, Christ has accomplished everything for us. We've done nothing to deserve it. We've done everything to deserve God's judgment. He created us in right relationship with him, and we rejected him. We, like sheep, we have gone astray. But we learn from Scripture that Christ, the the Son of God, stepped into the world in which he created. He took on flesh for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised for us so that we, through him, could be forgiven of sin and made right with God and have life in him with God forever. What's required? of you and me is for us to see our sin forsake that sin turn to Christ trust in him alone for salvation make him our Lord so that we can be saved if you're here this morning you've never made that decision you're still holding on to the reins of your life I I urge you I beg you today let go of the reins give them over to Jesus and be saved Let's pray.